Hey, everyone, and welcome. You are listening to Alumnus. Thank you so much for tuning in, and happy Friday to you. It is January the 19th, 2024. I am Ryan Catherwood, and the gentleman sharing the screen with me is Chris Marshall. He is the founder, the CEO of CMAC, and Alumnus is a CMAC production if you have any questions for Chris or myself, or just want to say hello, please do use the comments section of the LinkedIn event. And we can actually see your comments here from our streaming interface. And uh, we'll try to answer your questions uh, during the broadcast. Of course, if you have any questions for our special guest today, uh, JT Forbes from the Indiana University Foundation, uh, we'd be grateful if you'd submit them. Or, but just go ahead and introduce yourself and let us know where you're checking in from. We love hearing from you. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast edition of Alumnus uh, so that you don't miss any of our episodes and you get to hear the 30-minute bonus segment that we record with each of our guests, which includes our Friday Cheers segment that uh, sometimes we have some really great uh, referrals for you. And uh, at a minimum, we always have a couple of interesting ideas about the types of things we're thinking about. Uh, Chris, were you going to say something there? You're on mute, my friend. Sorry about that. I was going to say, sometimes it's highbrow, sometimes it's lowbrow, the Friday Cheers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you never know what you're going to get on the uh, Friday Cheers section, which is a great reason to pick up the, the podcast edition of the show. Uh, before we get too far down the line, I want to make sure to introduce our fantastic sponsoring partner, Protopia. Uh, we as engagement pros are always thinking about how to create more volunteer opportunities. Why is that? Well, the reason is, one of the big ones anyway, is that volunteers give at two and even three times the rate. At the same time, students throughout their educational journey have questions and could use the advice of alumni. And as alumni leaders, we're asked to figure out ways to make the alumni network available from prospective student to former student and develop partnerships across the campus that will showcase in real terms how valuable the alumni network can be. So without requiring alumni or students to sign up for another app or platform, Protopia's AI-powered technology activates alumni and turns them into volunteers. Students and alumni seeking advice are connected while removing the administrative burden to the staff. So be sure to check out uh, or visit protopia.co forward slash alumnus and let the team there led by Max Lyston know that Chris and Ryan sent you. All right. Well, uh, Chris, how are you doing today? It was good to see you. We actually caught up in person uh, last week. Time flies yep. by. We were together in Williamsburg at uh, with our friends at William and Mary. And um, you know, I think one of my favorite parts of of what we do is when we get the opportunity to have kind of brainstorming, you know, whiteboard sessions with our with our partners, where we're kind of laying it all out on the table and having sort of in depth conversations about. You know, where we're headed and and what's next, and sort of trying to tackle those those critical questions. But what do you what do you think is the key to having a, a great workshop like that? Whether you're involving us or not, of course. Yeah, yeah, it's a great end to that question. Is that I, I do think it's that everyone at the table has equal voice and equal responsibility to listen. And when you get that kind of collaborative spirit in any group, whether it's led by a consultant, facilitated by a consultant or not, the brain meld that happens and the ideas that come out of it are going to be better. So I always have, uh, you know, I, I try to set some basic ground rules and, and those ground rules include things like all voices are equal. 
no matter who's speaking, we're all listening. So make sure you're doing that. Active listening, athletic listening is a term I use sometimes. Uh, and that I also expect everyone to contribute. If you sit back as a passive you know, participant and we make some decision, I said, you're, you've agreed to what the group's agreed on because you didn't say anything. And, uh, and if you had an idea that you think should be gone a different way, it's you're responsible to speak up and say, no, we should go this direction instead. And so I used to say silence is consent, but that wasn't it didn't play well in our world. So but but if you're silent in the context of a meeting like that and you and you let something happen, you've consented to the agenda of the full group by not speaking up. So I'll be a little more specific when I say it next. But um, you know what I'm getting at. So all voices equal. Everyone listens and lean in. Yeah, well, it was a really great uh, brainstorming session. And I think part of the conversation that we had with our friends at William and Mary is one that lots of university uh, alumni teams, advancement teams are having, which is sort of the relationship between the university and university advancement, the alumni association. You know, sometimes there's a foundation involved as well, yep. right? Kind of in that picture. And there's a relationship there with a couple of different organizations. It's fair to say that most universities continue to work on redefining these relationships and create new structures uh, we're going to bring out JT in just a second, but I wanted to sort of ask you about how would you describe, you know, how the Indiana University Foundation, the Indiana University Alumni Association are thinking about engagement in philanthropy. You're, you're wearing your IU uh, sweater vest there and you have the IU, you know, pennant behind you yeah, for those of us who are listening. for JT too, so I got it all. <laughs> we're really sucking up today, um, but uh, uh so what do you, so do you, have been your observations about IU and, and perhaps more broadly? I mean, like many institutions, they're on this journey. Um, and all of us, I think all schools are on it at some level. And you and I talk about this a lot, Ryan. We call it this integrated advancement model, the continuum from one end of it's all about alumni engagement and the other end, it's all about fundraising. Most alumni programs are somewhere near the middle to the right, frankly. We're more and more leaning into the fundraising component of it. And, and JT has led previously an alumni association that was, you know, middle to left and then has bumped into this more, you know, they're not legally integrated. They're, they're, he'll tell us the story, but they're on the similar journey, like a lot of institutions, thinking about how the two pieces connect together. How often should we think about it being a fundraising outcome versus how often do we think about just being about engagement for engagement's sake? And there's lots of, uh, People out there have different opinions on it. I can't wait to hear JT's on it. But I think I use on a pretty typical path on this. Um, and for a large public, I mean, I, I believe, JT might correct me on this, I believe Penn State is the largest alumni base, a little over 800,000. I think IU finishes second around 780,000 alums. Um, and for a large public like this to have, be having these kind of conversations, I would put them in the cutting edge, bleeding edge category of this work. Um, and look forward to hearing his thoughts on it. Let's bring this guy out. Yeah, that sounds like a plan. Let's do it. Hey, JT, how are you? Good, good. Good to see you guys. You too. Oh, you're so, Thank you for coming. so glad you could join us today. Uh, JT Forbes is the president and CEO of the Indiana University Foundation. And prior to leading the foundation, JT was CEO of the IU Alumni Association. So really unique perspective you have, JT. We're really glad to have you. Uh, so first question is about, uh, you know, you led the IUAA, the Alumni Association, for 12 years. You know, what propelled you to, to pursue the role of president and CEO of the foundation? 
Well, um, it actually pursued me. I wasn't seeking it. I was asked and called to serve in this role. And as we explored that over, my wife calls it the longest interview ever, three years, um, <laughs> presidential transitions, <laughs> pandemic, all sorts of stuff. Um, what I came to realize, it was it was an opportunity not only to serve my alma mater, which is a really special thing to be in this role for an institution that impacted my life as much as it did. But also it was a chance to take the early education I got in the deeper, you know, historical, philosophical, and professional understanding of the expressions of philanthropy throughout time, but also in modern context. It, it brought that all into service to be in this role. And I think the, the pastoral work you do um, as alumni director and the community building you do and the people you meet um, and give you a unique insight into how you do this to ensure um, it maintains its integrity as philanthropy, not just as fundraising, but as really marshalling voluntary action for the public good, for the benefit of the mission and priorities of a very large, complex institution. Um, when Chris talks about that number of alumni at IU, that number is derived from a whole network yeah. of campuses throughout the state of Indiana. I mean, we even have four-year medical education programs on non-IU campuses throughout the state. So it's a very large, diverse body of alumni who all go to institutions that aren't all the traditional 200-year-old residential campus. We have a robust um, urban campus in the capital city. And then we have a network of, of um, degree, four-year baccalaureate and some master's degree programs, um, campuses throughout the state. And then again, there's medical education centers. So it's a very distributed and diverse enterprise. And I love complexity and I love jobs where I can learn and grow professionally and personally. And boy, does this give me that opportunity. <laughs> it's one of the more complex schools. JT, you and I were one time sort of, who's, who's this complex? And I threw out the University of Toronto and University of Illinois as somewhere in the ballpark of complex issue. But I know now Indiana University is peerless. I've learned that from my time with IU. <laughs> We're a case study in complexity. I think uh, it's it's a rife um, playground for people who want to do case studies on institutional complexity. Yeah. Well, JT, sure. it's now been three years since you took over the CEO role at the IUF. Um, and you've been thinking about opportunities for the IUF and IUAA to work mm -hmm. together and develop a shared vision for philanthropy at IU, how has that gone? And what have you been uh, thinking about and working towards in that area? Well, actually at Indiana University, it's not just about the Alumni Association because it's its own 501c3 um, corporation with its own board, as well as the foundation is a 501c3 charitable foundation that also enables the fundraising for the university. But there's a third piece to our Venn diagram, and that is the individuals that work in campus schools and units. And part of this IU complexity is that for years under our budget system, everybody worked in kind of a loose confederation. And we're in the evolution of figuring out how we look at that as an ecosystem, not see three separate kind of pillars of excellence that only work together opportunistically. So we're looking at how do we marshal the full potential of all that talent and all that need and all that opportunity to where we all work 
in a much more interconnected, interdependent, transparent, collaborative, intentional, measurable way. And that's really been the journey we've been on over the last several years. Because for years, these things all operated, as I said, um, without that level of a bigger vision of how we all work together for the benefit of IU. Now, that said, that approach has been successful for a long time. It's, it is not sustainable into the future. So we're systematically working through that at the speed of trust. And opportunity. <laughs> the speed of trust. That is a new. There, there, there's a great line. I want to make sure you've met this person because he, he used Brian Cisco is your counterpart at NC State. Have you met Brian yet? I haven't yet. You two should meet because he uses the phrase as fast as we can and as slow as we must. <laughs> <laughs> It's a great line, though, isn't it? That is, yes. yes. Universities are not uh, known for their swift adoption of change. Right. <laughs> yeah. Tectonic yeah. pacing. The fastest fast is the pace of trust. I like that line, too. So, JT, talk about how your day-to-day, -day, your parking spot and your office have changed, but your day-to-day -day life and your coming into work and how you spend your time, how has that changed between – 12 years at IUA. And how long has it been at the foundation now? Oh, I think three years. Three. Yeah. Um, I think I, you know, I, I'd lost count because I just, <laughs> live in my day. Um, so how's life changed? Well, fundamentally, I think when you're in a job for as long as I was at the alumni association, you kind of get into a rhythm and alumni associations tend to inherently be very event driven. Right. And so you kind of get on a routine cycle and in this job, there is that kind of, um, those. now that I've been at three years, the, the patterns and rhythms are starting to emerge, but it is more opportunity driven. So it really depends on when a relationship has reached a level of maturity where I need to be involved in that process of taking that relationship um, from into a conversation about a gift. And, um, and you know, those, let's be clear, everybody, we all know that no relationship is linear. So, you know, checking in and stewarding people that have been generous, um, showing that we did what we said we would do to keep their promises um, alive and their dreams alive. Because when people make a gift here, they have a, they're making a gift, particularly an endowed gift. It's for a dream they want to last forever. So we need to check in on that while they're still living and make sure that we've got transparency in that relationship and we're demonstrating performance and staying in touch. And then sometimes those turn into conversations about doing something else. So a lot of the work is really more one-to-one -one relationship development and building. Um, some people we do that with when they visit campus and others we go see where they are. So it's just a lot more dynamic um, in that regard. I will say too, um, the foundation and its business, its operating model and its financial model, give it a lot more resources and flexibility than the alumni association has. You know, we were for many years in kind of a traditional membership driven model. And, you know, people don't want to pay for their membership status or alumni status anymore. And, and some of the ways that universities had financed um, alumni associations through alternate revenue streams, those things happen here. Those are all altering and changing too. Yeah. You know, yeah. AI and technology is not just disrupted, you know, the alumni directory. Um, but it's also disrupting the revenue model. And so it's nice to be able to operate strategically with um, 
and be able to make investments that really can lead to sustained results. Because there's just a lot of hustling for bucks and resources to do things that go on, I think, in a lot of alumni associations. You know, we're by most measures in terms of endowment and FTE and annual budget, the alumni association budget in the university looks larger than most. But when you divide that by the number of alumni, it's a lot more modest than most. Because remember, we're talking about almost a billion alum, living alumni, right? So um, those are some of the ways it's, it's, uh, it's, it's different. Uh, I'm also in a unique role now where I, um, <clears throat> I'm a part of the president's leadership cabinet. So all these things happening in her higher education, I'm in a, I've got a front row seat and I'm often in the room when we're trying to work through some of these incredibly challenging things that are happening in the society that are um, washing onto the shores of the universities. Yeah. So that playing out in the last several months. Yeah. Yeah. We all know. One of the interesting things I've noted about, especially the larger public institution and alumni associations is that it's not unusual to find that they spend more time on generate and more resources and disproportionate number of their staff on self-generated revenue so they can keep their operations going versus the time they spend on engaging alumni. And, and my approach is often to say, we need to flip that model and spend more resource and time on engagement. Talk about that a lot. Yeah. Well, getting, being really intentional and honest about what we can do well, not just what we can do. I mean, a lot of alumni associations, and I use no exception, uh, Trisha and I were talking about this the other day. Trisha Revere Stumpf is now the chief alumni officer. By the way, everybody that's on here that knows her, you all know she's smarter, works harder, and is way more effective in that role than I ever was. And I'm really... That's why we had her on the show before you. She was on ahead of you, JT. As it should be. Um, So... um, so I'm sorry. I got so excited about making sure everybody knows how know how awesome she is. I forgot the question. What's the question again? I, don't, I think <laughs> well, I was talking well, I, about how the disproportionate spending on self-generated revenue versus engagement, and you were going to respond to that. It wasn't even a question. It was. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's a real, a real thing. I, well, I guess where I, well, the point I want to make is sometimes we get so busy trying to do breadth, be everywhere. Right. We were, Trish and I were talking about this the other day, and we see that as the win. We're everywhere. I think increasingly people that get involved with universities first are a precious gift because it's not something you can just assume is going to happen. Sure. But also they're looking for depth. Like they want to be involved meaningfully and, and showing up at a, at a socially predominantly social gathering or even a networking experience is not enough for people that want a sustained relationship. And that's one of the big challenges we're facing because universities and their alumni associations are not community-based charities. I mean, Indiana University is a global university with alumni all over the world. And we tend to look at it sometimes through the lens of the past where it was much more localized. Yeah. Yeah. Two-thirds of the graduates of the Bloomington campus, the oldest campus, live outside the state of Indiana. So we have to think about our engagement strategies and meet them where they are. And so that's why I just amplify that. That's one of the lessons I learned. And the other one was, don't believe alumni when they tell you what they want the university to do. Because when all of our research over years showed us that when you follow that, they really look at a lot of those things we offer as insurance. They like to know it's there if they need it, but they right. often think somebody else needs it more than they do. Right. Kind of right. Like. So, 
So I think you have to really be intentional and clear headed and much more honest about what volunteer opportunities you can offer and what the university really needs from its volunteers. And I'm sure glad Trisha is going to figure that out. <laughs> so, so JT, has your opinion on engagement in general changed at all uh, since transitioning to your role at the foundation? Oh, I'm a liberal arts major and a humanist at heart. So when I took the alumni role, I really believed that we were going to live this utopian Tocquevillian view of democracy, that the alumni body really was seeking to form an association in order to um, express its citizenship and participate in the affairs of the university. And when you read the history of these organizations, that's what they were at the beginning because the university yeah. needed them. Um, as I worked in that field longer and longer, and we did more and more research and more listening, I think that's all really evolved. Again, I think alumni are looking for meaningful experiences and the university tends to default to looking for more donors. And we've got to meet, everybody's got to meet in the middle and understand that all the success universities have had in fundraising in large measure is the product of decades long relationship management. And this kind of um, production mentality that is an important part of running a, a development shop. Um, has to have within it intentionality to understand part of that production is rooted in developing consistent relationships over time that may have a component of donorship and a steady pattern of transactions of financial commitment, but it also has to be understood at its fundamental level. It's, a, it's helping sustain somebody's faith in the and trust in the institution over time. Yeah. Speaking, um, and speaking of, go ahead, finish. So, so to me, um, I agree. I was at a CAAE meeting, Council of Alumni Association Executives meeting in 2015, where three former um, chief alumni officers from venerable alumni associations came. It was like Stanford, Yale, and Michigan. And um, the Yale person said, if you want sustainable fundraising, put an al chief alumni officer in charge of the development program. And that just stuck with me. And I'm lucky that somehow I find myself in this role in getting uniquely acquainted to the unique challenges that come with following the advice of the former Yale alumni director. The Mark said that. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of uh, relationships with uh, IU, um, we so we shout out to Maria, Carrie, and Matt who are on. You have a fan club, but we also have someone who added. And, and for the person who added this, we're seeing it on our feed as LinkedIn users. So if you want to identify yourself, it says, my wife and I met at IU Bloomington and would love to engage back more meaningfully. So and what that typically gonna, means is two a, more engagement a, points out of this for you. <laughs> awesome. And that's, that typically happens when someone has a more private setting on their LinkedIn profile uh, set up, but we'll, we'll be able to see who that is in the, in the LinkedIn event when we check it out so for JT right. to follow up because there's Thanks clearly the a, a relationship opportunity there. Mm -hmm. uh, if you could go back in time, JT, the last three years, would you do anything differently so far? It's the classic share question. If I could turn back time. There's a yeah. song for everything, everybody. That's one of the things you should learn. Um, classic too. I, I, um, Probably would, but I think you always have to be have the willingness to fail forward. So I think the real test is not whether you made a mistake or something didn't work. 
It's what do you learn from that, either individually in terms of your own performance or organizationally in terms of how do we organize differently. So I don't think, um, I don't, I wouldn't do anything differently because that wouldn't be the product of all that trial and error and growth right. and success had, if I like tried to re relive that all. Um, so no, I don't think I'd do anything differently. What do you see as the most significant challenge you're facing with thinking about um, the, IE, the foundation and the associate, alumni association working together to reach engagement and fundraising goals? I, I have one, and it's a scale-related one that I've seen for you guys, but I'm wondering what you would identify as the the or one of the greatest challenges that you'll face in that, in, that sort of working together integration mode. Uh, I just have um, culture culture um you know some of the way things are here the product of relationships between people that go back way long time in history because there's a point in the history of advanced institutional advancement at IU where the chief alumni officer and the chief CEO of the alum foundation were competitive with one another and it built this culture of separateness and suspicion that we continue to have to um transform because it's just a very deep rooted thing that, you know, they're the friend raisers and they shouldn't be talking to the fundraisers. Right. Or, <laughs> well, the big bad foundations over here are doing this stuff and they have a better resource and have more people and, and look down at us in the alumni world and alumni world kind of like, well, I don't know that I want to dance with them. Go to the and, dark side and work uh, with the foundation. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and it's, it's really kind of funny because now that I'm in this role, I don't come in with that mental model, but I right. still see it. And yeah. um, I think it's evolving. Um, and Trisha's doing a good job leading the alumni culture in that direction. I'm trying to do what I can over here. Um, and I think the one of the best things we did to do that was to take John Fudo's book and use it in a book group with key leaders in both organizations. Where Because yep. that book is... Um, really accessible to everybody. And it's really wonderful because it sources all the wisdom of people in a way that amplifies these themes. And I think that's helped us from a staff standpoint, but there's always going to be some past chairs of the alumni association or board members of the foundation who are suspicious of a closer alignment because they came up at a time where that system worked for them. And, and that's fine. Um, in the world we live in today, in the research we did with alumni, they very few, unless you get close to the way I use organized, differentiate between the foundation and alumni association. It's all IU. We're all right. operating exactly. under right. the private. If and you have so, 70,000 alumni, 700,000 don't know or care about the distinction that you, we all know yeah. about. <laughs> and for those who do, that is a precious trust you don't want to undermine. Sure. Right. So it's all to change management. So, and, you know, for me, this all comes down to a quote I picked up the other day. Um, ironically, it's a George Orwell quote. Um, let me see if I can get it here. Um, let's see. I knew JT would go Orwellian on us at some point. But I know that's the problem with quotes sometimes is the, the source. Um, how do I get this to go away? Don't, clearly, I don't know how to use my phone. Every generation imagines itself to be more intelligent than the one that went before it and wiser than the one that comes after it. And for all the change-minded leaders on this, this is probably a lesson learned, not a regret. Um, for the change-minded people who are impatient, 
like I used to be, and I still kind of am. I think another way you could look at this is every administration of an alumni association or foundation or university imagines itself to be more intelligent than the one that went before it yeah. and wiser yeah. than the one that comes after it. And so I would <laughs> say in all this, it's let's all leave with a little more humility. Yeah. And let's also respect that our work is built on the what worked in the past. And our challenge is to adapt only those things that require to be altered in order to adapt to the way people connect, trust, and get involved in institutions. And frankly, I think if we would do that, imagine a Congress with the capacity to do that. Imagine yeah. Yeah. these corporate leviathans that are driving economies that are bigger than countries, if they had that capacity to adapt like that. Yep. And have the pride in thinking more about transformation than disruption. Because transformation is growth-centered. Disruption has destruction in it. So at the That's beginning, awesome. Matt Winston chimed in and said that uh, JT about to drop some knowledge and you did and you lived up, man. That was great. <laughs> I was just gonna say the same thing. I was like, there you go, Matt. There's your knowledge bomb. Um, right Matt, you were too kind and Boy, were the insights you gave me a couple years ago spot on. And one other user put in JT for president. And just so you know, JT, we've identified who the person was, Earl Murphy and Audra, class of 20, 2004. And Mike Mann responded, they're going to take care of Earl and, and Audra to make sure they're engaged meaningfully. So, uh, Chris, um, while we're, uh, we're about to wrap things up, and my phone's on the other side of the room, but a, a great question popped up there in the chat that I thought, if you sure. could just take a quick picture of it or remember, remember it, uh, we'll, we'll answer it in the bonus section of the podcast about it digital starts experience. starts off with how do you differentiate between an alumni's engaged digital experience interfacing back the institution versus the actual people experience. We'll, we'll put this yeah. in the last... Section, we'll so. tackle we'll tackle that one in the podcast. And apologies, edition, we, whoever's put it in. Great question, but we don't see your name. It says LinkedIn user for you as well. So maybe that's maybe all that's Earl. So Earl, you guys Earl. are good at the upsell on the extended play dance mix version of this. That was pretty. Oh, that's yeah, right. Yeah. Pretty yeah. We're getting we, pretty we good. Get, Forty-two episodes. In, you you know? have about a thousand people watching you right now, uh, and then like thirty thousand will watch the recorded version because of you. So just so you know, I'm an only child. I'm an only child in a small family. So who knew I had that many loved ones? <laughs> Uh, well, before we head over to the record the bonus segment, uh, Chris, who are we featuring in two weeks? The yeah, next one's going to be fun because it's it. He's brilliant guy, uh, but sort of opposite. It was Earl Murphy the whole time, so Earl wants you to be president too. Um, uh, this is a brilliant guy who's relatively new to the alumni engagement field. He comes with a whole different background, and he brings some really cool thinking to this at Loyola University Chicago. A guy named Lawrence Balotin. JT, I think you might have met him, right? He was kind of starting when you were leaving the role. And, yeah. and and Lawrence is just a really thoughtful guy. I sat down with him at the case summit this year and he told me three or four things they were doing. And I said, Lawrence, you got to come on our show and tell that story. So I'll have lots of ideas and fodder for questions for him. And everybody on LinkedIn can see each other when they're talking to each other, but we're right. in a, an interface called StreamYard. And so, like, the, <laughs> for some reason, there's a uh, a disconnect between being able to see who everybody is. Not sure why. I think it's people's individual settings. But your, well, your presidential lobbyist was Jennifer Cunningham, by the way, JT. So uh, you, know. well, <laughs> you can crunch all the polling data and I might get elected. There you go. <laughs> there we go. So I have one quick question before we sign off here. So when I agreed to do this, I, is the extended part where I get to meet um, Jason, Jason, Sean, and Will? 
Yeah, they're coming on in the in the after okay. show. Right. Exactly. Oh, oh wait, this is alumnus. Uh, alumnus. We're not smartless. Not smartless. Oh, I why am I doing here? We're trying to keep it quiet so they don't copyright infringe us on our name. <laughs> yeah. There's no much of a Biori swag. <laughs> we should get some swag and some cool like music like they have and you know we some do need a theme music. song my my 21 year old son said we need a theme song to go with you our logo do. i agree so i've been using like a theme song like to introduce the podcast you know but we don't have one for the live version that we i think we ought to work on that one let's have a contest for one of our listeners to record a theme song and we'll use the best one yeah that'd be good JT, All thank right, you. Well, it was fantastic. Thank you, JT. Yeah, thank you, everybody, for tuning in. 30 minutes goes by really fast. So pick up the podcast version to hear the extended conversation with JT and all of our other guests. And thanks to Max Leiston and the team at Protopia for being our sponsoring partner. Thank you, everybody. Have a good weekend, and we'll see you in two weeks. Bye. Hey, listeners. Chris and I were going to record an ad discussing all the great aspects of Protopia, of which there are many. But instead, we thought it would be even better to hear from one of Protopia's current partners. Here's Sally Sistar, Executive Director of Alumni Engagement at Denison University, talking about her experience with the technology. If you like what you hear, be sure to go to protopia.co forward slash alumnus and check it out. How do you see Protopia fitting into your plans? You've mentioned a few ways that I might imagine it fitting in, but what do you think? It's a tremendous fit. Listen, I cannot tell you how excited I was when I took this job to know that they already had Protopia, right? It's a very, very smart decision. Um, because one, it just, you know, it with the AI technology enabled, like it takes us out of the equation, right? It is really a great tool for alumni and students to ask those questions and be connected to, you know, the the top experts, right, or the top individuals to answer those questions for them. Um, what I've been really excited to hear about here at Denison is, you know, if that question goes to five alumni, well, all five of our graduates are answering. And then it gets into, you know, like um, a train of communications between them and the individual asking the question. So it's really facilitating community for us in a way that we couldn't do that ourselves. If we were at the helm of trying to, you know, facilitate someone's question going to those individuals, right? It's just, it's automatic and that's the beauty of it. Um, the other thing I would say to you is that it is also, it's bringing people into, um, it's engaging alumni that may not have engaged with us in any other way, right? But they really are appreciative that, you know, they get an opportunity to, to help another alumni um, member or help a student. Um, so I just, I mean, I can't say enough great things about what a difference maker that has been for us on the engagement level. We are back with JT Forbes. He is the CEO of the Indiana University Foundation. We're delighted to have him join us on Alumless. And uh, we had a great live uh, show. You know, clearly a dedicated fan base, an adoring fan base even. Uh, JT for was, president. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we have, he was nominated for office. 
Uh, I think you could win the New Hampshire pri- New Hampshire primary. I, I think you could take it. <laughs> yeah, even with just a couple of days to to campaign, I feel like you could do a pretty good job. But when we when we start off the the podcast uh, edition uh, or the bonus segment, JT, I always try to make a, a just a couple of minutes to talk a bit more about the institution that our guests represent and. You know, we talked about it in the live show that IU is a huge university, multiple campuses and medical education sites around the state with core campuses, of course, in Bloomington and Indianapolis. How have you worked to create synergies for engagement across all those campuses? It's um, well, my the majority of my career is with Indiana University um, with stops out to go learn somewhere else or to accept an invitation to try something new. And I just provide that at con my context so nobody thinks I airdropped in here or I'm one of the I just rally around the teams right um it's been a lifelong work um you know as a student leader I saw a gap where student government people across all the campuses weren't had no mechanism to be a common student voice so we created an all university student assembly uh, I got hired by a president to really knit together ways we could recognize and encourage public and community service among students and and so on. So it takes a sustained amount of effort over a long period of time to create those kinds of synergies. And I'll tell you, in my own career, the crazy thing is a lot of the people that have taught me so much and I learned from so much from with whom I had the deepest relationships I have all moved into retirement over the last seven years, and it makes it a little trickier because the nature of the place has evolved. And so um, how have I done that? It's I gave you those two early examples, but when I was in the government relations role, it was the same thing. How do you marshal the full potential? Well, let's try to get funding to expand four-year medical education around the state because that was a need. So you have to go with where the need is, and you have to listen to people and help match their needs at the local level with what you can do to influence the macro level, um, that is a focus or a priority. And um, so when it comes to engagement, it's a real challenge because you have a traditional residential campus that's a net exporter of talent in Bloomington. Um, Same with our medical school. A lot of people stay, but a lot of people go other places. And um, and then you have really localized campuses where 85% of the graduates stay in the region. And um, so you have to be willing to adapt and you also have to be willing to admit when you don't have enough resources. And we've gone through the painful work to do that. We also went through the change management of recognizing that if we want to engage alumni in a certain region around the state, we need to do programming that attaches to the interests and willingness to engage of people in that region. Because for years we ran our regional statewide network of chapters as if everybody had graduated from the Bloomington campus, when the reality is the majority of those alumni are in that region. So we had to do the work to move that back to the campuses that are in closer touch and try to get the campuses to prioritize and finance some of that engagement because you can't do it for free. And now Trisha is trying to work through what can we do at a scalable and sustainable level um, with alumni engagement on those campuses, because keep in mind, some of those campuses are facing this enrollment cliff because they have to, they're limited in their ability to recruit within their regions. And some of their regions are not growing. Um, Northwest was one of your campuses I work closer with, and this is a dire issue for them. Yeah. 
And some of that also requires our institutions to become more welcoming and adapt to rising populations. So Northwest has done a great job. They're now one of the only Hispanic serving, the federally declared Hispanic serving institutions in the state, in the university family. And so um, that's an example of adaptation, right? So we're always in that painful process of adaptation. I think some of this goes to the question that somebody asked on the way out. I think we got to quit thinking like digital and in-person are conflicting or there's tension. It's all part of a coherent experience. And I think sometimes we get so focused on getting people in the room at the same time to rally around something that we're missing opportunities to invest in digitally assisted ways for people to connect. Like, you know, Protopia is kind of another interesting iteration of this effort to figure out how you leverage technology to help people maintain and sustain their own relationships. Um, with some curation, but not control on the part of the university. That's, I think, the real challenge in all this that transcends alumni work, engaging people. I used to say years ago, the first gift we get from people is their opinion. Now I believe the first gift we get is their attention. Hmm. There's just so much more content out there in the world. And there's so many more forces trying to distract and activate us that um, just getting somebody's attention is progress. Yeah. That sort of awareness kind of sits right before that yeah. initial activation and, 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 you know, sort of a response back, right. When the university asks a question. Yeah. Let me read that question, Ryan. Cause there's yeah, a yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. There's a second part to it. That's actually really interesting. It was, it was my, so on the list of things that I would say are the biggest challenges for IU, what's mentioned second here is one of them. Um, one of the ones that were on my list. So the question fully was, how do you differentiate between an alumni's digital experience interfacing back with the institution versus the actual people experience, alumni experience holistically? You kind of hit on that. Love to hear Ryan's thoughts on this. But the second part is, mm -hmm. I want my alma mater to show they know me and foster a true lifetime relationship with me. And they said they're a Syracuse grad. 300,000 alumni population. So they're in a similar scale challenge as you, but I find this true with smaller. I'm a, I'm an alum of a medium-sized institution. And I'm pretty active and I feel like it talks to them like they don't know me. Um, how do, how do, how do you talk to someone if they, an IU grad when there's 780,000 of them out there and we have to know them to be able to get their attention? Um, I think some of it is fundamental marketing strategy of being better at what I will call personalization. I don't like the word segmentation. I agree. It's dividing a market to sell. Personalization to me is adapting to be more centered on the, on the individual. Um, but I think those, what mark, traditional marketers called segmentation is a step in that direction. How do we really organize this in ways that are likely to connect and meet people where they are? So, for example, um, maybe we shouldn't be doing mass communications um, through email to all alumni as if they all had the same experience. Right. And so we've got to think through that. Um, I still think there's work. And th this is all resourced. I mean, the, the universities are not adequately resourced to do this. And I think the Amazon vacation thing is BS because we're not selling that kind of product. Um, we're not really selling anything. We're offering educational opportunity, but in research insights and growth and 
anyway. Um, so I think part of it is understanding that it's all a connected experience. Not everybody's going to show up in person, but they're out there. Our university's X feed is huge. Um, how do we start to look at that and actually see that as an asset and quit adding more X things? Like those are as, um, oh gosh, I can't remember her name right now, but I talked to her about it one time. Ashley Budd. Um, now I remember her name. We talked about this one time. Those smaller sub things we create are like dialed in radio stations. Like you've picked a genre of the university you want to listen to and dial in on. But we've not really thought that through strategically. We just say, oh, we need an X. We got to be on what used to be Twitter instead of really thinking through what are we doing there. So I think it's just, we just never get to this. We never get to it. And at the end of the day right now, if the university has an extra dollar to spend on something non-academic, they're going to put it into something that's going to generate more revenue. Right. Yep. And so my challenge as a leader is how do I help make sure we meet our goal for fundraising, but how are we doing some things on the margin to invest in a future that makes this easier for the person that follows me? Because I think we're all neglect. This is deferred maintenance. We don't have a digital strategy that's alumni centered. It's a lot of blasting what we want to say. Right. JT, by the way, your successor, you'll be wiser than that person, just for the record. Oh, I know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I, I, quick one, Ryan, I don't want to get back on script here. So JT, earlier spot, you mentioned uh, John Fudo's book. He's our guest coming up on June 7th. June 7th, you'll hear from John. Which He's written seven books. Which one did you guys use as a department? We Are Family. We Are Family. John Fudo, it's a case book, phenomenal yeah. book. There's a chapter in it that was written by some brilliant consultants. So take a look at that one. Oh, I think I skipped uh, over that section. Did you? <laughs> Smart. <laughs> that was a coloring book section. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Ryan, get us back on script. <laughs> well, we were, you know, wanted to ask you about uh, IU's plans for a campaign. I think there are, is one on the horizon Maybe you could share a little bit more for the IU listeners out there about what you're doing to help get the university prepared for that campaign. Yeah. I need to say in a public forum on the record, Suzanne Hilzer-Wiles was right. Because when I first got in this job, we had this great colloquy back and forth. I was like, campaigns suck because they create false urgency, mainly for the internal audience to do what they ought to be doing on a regular basis. What I've come to accept is a campaign helps everybody stay focused. And the process of organizing what you want to do in such a cacophonous um, place with tons of competing ideas and priorities, um, that really just helps create a regimented structure for listening eloquently, focusing, and delivering on what those priorities are in a given time period. That said, the campaign here, I do hope, is um, understands that it's got to be sustainable. And this moment of focus has to focus on things like, yes, raising money, operational excellence and advancement, which I define as not just getting gift agreements out the door better, but really improving best practice and engaging people for the long haul. And then Trisha and I are talking about that third leg really being something about how do you leave a community of trust and faith in the university who are ready to step into being the next generation of leaders and donors in a more intentional way? All of which has to be measurable. 
What we're aided with goal in the campaign. What's that? You think you'll have an engagement? We're goal going back and forth on that. Yeah, right now. Um, and we're still early stage. We're just starting the process of listening and assessment for campaign ready. We guys do. But there will be one. I think it will be very centered on student scholarships because our president is deeply committed to making college more affordable, particularly for first generation um, and need based student students. Um, there will be a strong focus on some really very clear transformational level gifts, 50 million and above that tie to our research and economic development priorities. Um, and ultimately, I think we're really aided in a way I've never seen in my entire career by a university strategic plan that's lean and measurable and very focused. Student success, research and um, creativity that's transformational and impacting the state. What's unique is we've used those in the past, but what's unique is it's just so tightly focused and so well-managed as a strategic plan. So what we're gonna do is campaign planning is actually strategic planning. It's not just about how many bucks are we gonna get and for what. We're really looking at this is how um, do we align the alumni association's work, the foundation's work, and these campus schools and units, CSUs as we call them internally, to be focused on achievement of the goals in the strategic plan. And we can do that because the university has cascaded that master plan or prime, primary or core plan down into what units are doing to help students be successful, to really focus on where we can do the most good in research and to really be impactful in helping the state's economy. So I, I'm pretty, I feel really good about that. Um, the challenge is getting alignment of campus CSUs, IUAA and IUF, but I think we've got, um, we're putting the things in place to do that. JT, real quick on the, what's the scale of the, another book John um, Feudo wrote was called Cat Herding. <laughs> herding cats, I think it is for volunteer management, but your cat herding is, what's the end of the number of staff that are in the foundation, CSUs, the Alumni Association? What are we talking about? I'm sorry, could you repeat that? I got a text from uh, all my development officers are doing these key business reviews today and they use their lunch break to listen to me. So I'm really nervous. <laughs> Just wondering with the size of your staff all in college schools, units, alumni association, foundation, fundraisers, alumni engagement, you, whatever yeah, it, world. From a rough FTE basis, because there's a lot of people with percentage time allocation. Yep, yep. It's probably around 400 ish yep. FTE. Yep. So that's a big universe, man. There's like 800 users in our um, CRM. Wow. But 400 people that are accountable for some aspect of institutional advancement. Yeah. Now, the foundation only has direct control over about 250 of those. Well, three, 250, yeah, 250-ish. Because we're in a process of establishing what we're calling matrix management, where we manage, supervise, select, develop um, um, the lead development officer in the key units around the campus right, school right, unit level right. people. And then the other side of that is the dean in that example. It would be the other. Yeah, the dean is kind of more of the client Got and it. collaborator. Yeah. We hold the pen on the people. And we're paying at 60% of the salary and benefits and then provide some travel subsidy to that lead development officer. Got it. JT, part of the success of any campaign or just a cohesive approach to alumni engagement overall involves a, a proactive volunteer board or boards. 
and uh, that are well positioned to be champions. How has your work with the IUAA board and IUF boards evolved over the years? Um, well, I subscribe to the Elvis attitude about this. And when we get to the cheers part, you'll know why. I think we need a little less governance and a little more action. I am not a big believer in boards because they create bylaws, they manage budgets, and they meet, eat, and ideate to tell professional staff what they already know how to do. And it creates distraction. I'd like to see us continue work to evolve where we ask people to come in on task-oriented, time-limited groups that spend their time talking about what are we going to accomplish over the next time window, not how do we add more layers of inertia to things. One of the hardest things we had to do was to shut down some of our alumni boards. And the ones that were the hardest were the ones that had the worst habits of self-dealing. Like, right. and, and or people we could really rely on who we really are glad were involved, who had a hard time letting go and being welcoming to others. Not because they weren't kind, but because they had a lot of trouble not holding on to what they'd created. And it pushed other people out who had new ideas and approached things differently. Because it's the whole transition that society's going through where we've relied forever on a generation of joiners who show up, right. they keep books, they make sure all the checklists are made, but they're being replaced by people who are just not wired that way. And so I think we've got to move to a different model. And, and I was most persuaded by that when the engagement team um, that was at that in its iteration was led by uh, Rachel McAfee um, Jones got together and, and put together a proposal they came to me with that talked about a world without governance. And why it was so powerful is they were predominantly next generation people who'd had at least three to five years of working directly with the volunteers we had. So it was informed by their own generational experience and their own professional experience long enough to form an informed opinion. And it's really got me entrenched on that idea mm. that we really owe people more focused, time-limited experiences with a task in mind. You mentioned, but it's really hard to pull off. Yeah. You mentioned Trisha earlier. You just mentioned Rachel. Mike was on in the chat. You have some really good people. I know a few of the foundation folks also really good, but you're, I know the alumni team really well and you have some superstars there. I mean, they, they all could run a shop somewhere. I know. <laughs> Sorry. I said that out loud. <laughs> we do. We do have really stellar people. And part of it to me is that we worked really hard to um, get capable, talented people who care. Because I've worked with a lot of people who care, who can't get anything done. And I've worked with a bunch of people that get things done and leave awake. <laughs> they really had a, <laughs> have a, the, um, the best of them have this kind of understanding that they're really tending to a community of faith. And that the people that show up deserve our best effort and our most honest answers to things. And so I, I am glad you see that, Chris. And I'm, I've also been really impressed as I've met the new people that are being brought on that that is continuing. And that's also because I, I can't say enough about it. Trisha is a beacon for those kinds of people because that's who she is. Yep. 
Yep. There, well, you know, Tiffany Kaiser. I mean, she's already just. I um, met her at the retreat in November, and I was blown away. I mean, I, she stood up and made one statement, and I was, I was like, "Drop the mic! You, whatever you said, was perfect." She's so, was yeah, so profound. I was so excited to see her career unfold over there. Yeah. Yep. Brian, let's get us back on time and jump to the cheers because we want to make sure we get JT to his yeah. next thing. That sounds good. Well, JT, at the end of each of our shows, we try to have our Friday cheers section where we talk about something that could be advancement related. Maybe not. Could be something more personal and uh, share it with our audience. Uh, so what is your Friday cheers? Well, I, actually, I most recently, I've been doing a lot of reading just around um, to un better understand the dynamics of anti-Semitism in society, not just in college campuses. But the the thing, the book that's been stuck in my head that I, that I just keep seeing in the root of all this is a book called A New Power. It was written by these two people. One invented the uh, Giving Tuesday thing, and the other person applied their thinking to disrupting uh, machine politics in Australia. And they wrote this great book. And it's basically one where I just see this played out all the time, where some people see how we manage power is through structures that manage it like it's currency. And the internet has disrupted that where power now flows like energy or like a river, and you've got to learn how to harness it. And I just see that happening over and over again. And that's kind of where I think as a leader, one of the challenges I've got is how do you sustain an institution and institutional approaches and all the sustainability of civil society. And then while you also realize you've got to adapt to the very um, powerful currents that are enabled through technology. Because if you think about the, how wealth is being generated by those, by X or Facebook, it's they are figuring out how to stimulate our amygdala and monetize it. And that is that kind of a triggered based conditioning undermines civil and stable societies and institutions. And so I just, that book just keeps coming back. Even in the reading I'm doing on the current affairs issue, um, I just see that underneath it. And it's like, we haven't figured out how to deal with that. So my Friday cheers is keep reading. I think my other part of it from all this is keep reading, approach the world with positive intent, grace and humility, and you'll probably at least survive to the end of your career. And I'm betting on it. <laughs> <laughs> and the book again, A New Power. New, the New Power. The New Power. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Great. Thanks, I think I thank you enough for the chance to be with you two and talk to your groups. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, well, we pleasure. appreciate it. Sage, glad to have you. I and told thank you, you for everybody. The field. I mean, yeah. what you two are leading us to be able to do is really important and impactful. Oh, we, I was we talking about Ryan, Chris. I wasn't talking to you. Uh, I, <laughs> you know, on the podcast recorded version, I could say this, JT. Fuck you, JT. I don't care. <laughs> no. That um, may be our first f bomb. I think we've had some some asses and some shits before. But. I'm an only child. Yeah. But Chris is my brother. Yeah. He's just, and I am uh, 28 days older than JT. As his elder, I often give him advice. But he's <laughs> the smarter one in the relationship, I can tell you that. 
All right, well, follow that up, Chris. What's your Friday cheers? Well, mine came to me literally this morning on the flight. I was thinking about it. Uh, didn't have one, really. I often come up with it the day of, and mine's a health thing. Uh, I told Ryan, JD, before he came on the break, I was on the flight today. I've been pushing it pretty hard, not in a lot of sleep, didn't eat properly, um, dealing with some medication, some blood sugar issue. I had blood sugar on the plane. I, I passed out on the plane this morning at 6 a.m. flying up from Florida, woke up to the flight attendants and the doctor and a stethoscope and a thing on my arm, you know, with, with them getting ready to call the paramedics to take me off the plane. Um, and it just it was a really good reminder. I feel a hundred percent fine right now, but it was all blood sugar related, but it was a reminder to me, everything you said about taking care of yourself professionally, there's a personal side. And I know I'm looking at two guys here. I know do this much better than I do in terms of staying fit and active and, you know, doing exercise and things that you should be doing as a former coach, I should know this, but you fall into old habits and you let things go. I'm on a bit of a crusade. I've lost 20 pounds in the last few months and I am trying, but it's not, it's hard. So my reminder is it can happen anytime. Keep it in check. Do what you got to do. Sleep right, eat right. And exercise is my Friday cheers today for everybody. Cause it, you never know. Because I'm a stranger on the plane. They thought there was a cardiac issue and I was going to, you know, we were going to do an emergency landing. And for me, it was just a blood sugar thing. But I was fortunate and good reminder for me this morning. So that's mine. I'm glad you're OK, man. I'm, um, thanks for sharing that. And um, yes, we need you to, to eat and get your sleep. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I didn't tell my wife at all until I got home and I could tell her in person. And I got in big trouble. So, yeah. <laughs> About all those things, about eating and sleeping. So I might have kept that one to myself, honestly. The guy uh, sitting next to me in the plane was like, you're going to tell your wife about this? And I said, I'm debating how I'm going to handle yeah. this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, um, I'll wrap things up. I, um, I've, I've had a, on a crusade to try to read more of read more in general. And I've been um, trying to read more Pulitzer Prize winning books. But what I've discovered is, is that they're actually, you have to get on a list at the library and um, there's demand for those books. And so it kind of takes a little while to get them. However, um, I've started reading the books by the authors that have won Pulitzer Prize winning books. And so there's a, an author by the name of Colson Whitehead, and he wrote a, a Pulitzer Prize winning book called The Underground Railroad. I'm reading a book about, of his called The Nickel Boys. It takes place in a Jim Crow era, Tallahassee, Florida, and tracks a main character, um, a, a black young man who sort of unfortunately gets sent to a, a segregated reform school and um, it details his pathway both uh, during the school experience and, and then out again as he's trying to go to college. It is just beautifully written and um, really just an excellent read. So I've, I'm almost finished with it. Uh, I'm not sure if there's a plot twist to, to go yet, but even not having finished the book, highly recommend Colson Whitehead's The Nickel Boys. Um, you can find it, I'm sure, at your local library. But uh, okay, well, that wraps things up for today's alumnus. Thanks so much to JT Forbes for joining us. Uh, pleasure to have well you. Done. It was phenomenal, as expected. We we marketed you as the word with the word sage, and you delivered and exceeded expectations. Yeah, Chris, please take care uh, of yourself. I'm just emotionally overwhelmed by the idea that you're going through that. Please take care of yourself. I, the, I will. I love I will. you, man. I just want you to be healthy and safe. I will. Yeah. Well, thank you, sir. What he, 
what he said. And um, I'll see you on Sunday as we're going to be. Uh, well, actually, actually, I'm not going to see you all week, but we're going to be in the same state. <laughs> crisscrossing yeah. the state of Michigan. Yeah, we're going to be crisscrossing Michigan, <laughs> Michigan next week to do a bunch of focus groups, but we're not doing any of them together, uh, which will be weird. So uh, I will not see you next week, but we will be in the same state traveling. And uh, we'll have we'll have to have text exchange and like evening conversations to debrief and and deprogram probably. <laughs> yeah, I would, I think we need to, we're definitely going to need to talk. I'm sure of that. All right. Well, thanks again, JT, Chris. Um, we'll see you again soon. Thanks everybody for listening. And uh, we'll be back in your feed in two weeks. Bye now. Thanks everybody. Thanks again, JT.